We've been talking about worship. We've been talking about uh, what it is to come before the Lord, recognizing that worship is the reason that we are. Worship is the raison d'etre of the church. It's the reason for the church's existence. It's, it's why we exist. It's why when we're saved that we don't immediately get translated, as did Elijah. Why the chariot of fire didn't come and pick us up that moment that we believed is that we might worship, that we might praise God while we're here, and that His kingdom would be glorified on earth as it is in heaven. Evangelism, service, mercy, ministry, all these things are are vital parts of the work of the church, but they all flow from hearts of worship. We've talked about worship. We've talked about in the beginning that God has called us not to experience worship as just a series of actions and words. You know, like when you go to that church that you're not familiar with, where you look at the little old lady that's sitting up toward the front and, and, and wait for her to stand up or kneel down. When does she open up a hymnal? When does she open up a Bible and just kind of following and thinking, I can worship simply by following the actions of another or just following the actions that I've learned since my childhood. It's not a series of actions. And it's also not uh, the mere recitation of words, singing songs that we know by heart. Isaiah, he, he warns us about that. He says there are those, there are those even who are called the children of God who worship with their words, worship with their hands. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We talked about the idea that, that a worshiping heart is, is a singing heart. A worshiping heart is a, is a heart that is so full of praise that it comes out where words and emotion are wed together that we would praise God. A worshiping heart is also a broken and a contrite heart, humble before the Lord. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning, talking about a couple of particular occasions, but one in particular of the Pharisee who stood there in the temple and he praised God and said, Thank you, Lord. It sounds like a good prayer so far. Thank you, Lord, for not making me like other men. And goes on to recite his spiritual resume and then even belittles the, the man that was far off, said, Thank you for even making me not like that tax collector, wretched as he is. Those were actions. Those were actions dressed in the appropriate way, standing in the right place, probably even using a very religious tone of voice, but a heart that was so far away from his heavenly Father. But the broken, the contrite heart was the the tax collector who beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, for I am the sinner. A worshiping heart is a heart that draws near in in the visible signs, the visible sermon that we preach as we come in the sacraments through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. That we would come and we would remember and we would experience those means of grace in a wondrous way in those two sacraments ordained by Christ and said, continue to do these until I come again. That we would baptize, that we would come and dine together in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today I want to encourage you that a worshiping heart, a heart that's close to God, is also a heart that experiences a reverent, a quiet, a prayerful time regularly before God. As John, excuse me, as Psalm 46 says, Psalm 46, verse 10, our text for the day. The Lord says, Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
What an awesome call of God. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for writing them, that we might read them, that we might know them. Now write them upon our hearts, we pray, Lord God. We humbly ask that you would make us mindful of the needed stillness in the life of your children. Forgive us, Lord God, for filling our lives so full of noise and distraction that we fail to see you right before our face. May we in these moments be still. May we know that you are God. As we come in Jesus' name, amen. Thomas was probably in first or second grade. I'm not going to tell a story. I'm just putting it in a historical context. Thomas rolls his eyes and says, you didn't get permission to tell this story, Dad. It's not a story about Thomas. I just wanted you to put it in a particular date and time when he was about, about that big. We had gone to General Assembly in Pittsburgh. It was our, our big trip up to Pennsylvania. Gone into Pittsburgh, and spent a week at General Assembly, then took some vacation time on the tail end, and we went eastward. We got into eastern Pennsylvania and spent some wondrous, beautiful time in Amish country there. I could have stayed there for a lot longer. Uh, beautiful uh, pastoral environment, quiet, uh, peaceful, uh, wonderful. We then, uh, on that Sunday, then got up and we drove a few hours further to the east, uh, going from eastern Pennsylvania, Amish country, to downtown Manhattan. Talk about jumping a couple of centuries in just a couple of hours. It was startling, the contrast. And we stayed there for a few days. We went and saw the Lion King on Broadway. We took the Staten Island Ferry. We did all the touristy things. One thing I was struck by as we were there, though, they call it the city that never sleeps. The reason they call it that is it's impossible to sleep in that city. Uh, Even in our hotel room with the, the drapes pulled, the air conditioner on full blast, that sort of thing, it was impossible to, to mask out the noise. I was astonished at how loud the city was. I was longing and said, let's go back west. Let's go back into Lancaster County and let's just enjoy the sound of, of nothing for a few days. Well, one day we were going up to the top of the Empire State Building. You got to do it. Again, we were tourists. We were going up the, uh, uh, standing in line to go up to the top of the Empire State Building and had all these advertisements on the walls. And I was struck by one particular advertisement. It was funny. You could pay good money to, to get basically locked in a small soundproof room where you could turn off the lights and be in absolute darkness and absolute quiet for 15 minute increments. You, you could pay to find quiet. You could, you could give money to, to get peace to be still for a few minutes. I was amazed that they had found a way uh, to merchandise quiet. But I actually gave serious thought to thinking, that's not a bad price. <laughs> we, um, we, we live in a loud world, and we deliberately make our world loud. One reason that the church doesn't worship as it ought is that we're never still enough to let the the great reality of our God, thoughts of eternity, thoughts about existence and life, thoughts about our sin, thoughts about redemption through Christ, thoughts about love and eternity, we are never still enough to let those things actually hit us. The moment they do, we get uncomfortable. We fill that Silence, that stillness with noise, 
We turn on the TV, we turn on the radio, we pop something in our ears, we never seem to unplug and to be still before God. We're always on the move. We're always in a hurry. We don't stop. We don't pause. We just flip on the TV and we let somebody else fill our lives and our minds with their hurry. This is the world we live in. But yet, the psalmist writes, on behalf of God, be still. Be still. When do you get still? When do you listen to God? So I was talking about with our our children this morning. We don't experience stillness for the purpose of listening for the audible voice of God. But what we, we do is in our stillness, we hear God's voice speaking in the words that He has written to us, that He has given to us, that He has written upon our hearts. We consider the the reality that would cause the Bible to write and say only a fool would say there is no God. But what happens is the, the fool finds ways to distract himself from that obvious reality. The fool says there is just so much to distract me from the fact that the heavens show forth God's glory, the mountains, His handiwork, that creation itself and our existence itself speaks to the existence of God. But let's not think about that. Let's see what we can binge watch for a while. Let's turn the radio on. Let's talk and fill that stillness with noise. John Piper, in writing about this, Pastor John, I I love the thoughtful way that he approaches this. He was writing about it in the context of the study that he he was looking at in terms of the life of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, the pastor of Northampton, Uh, the great Puritan pastor who preached arguably the most famous sermon in the history of the United States. Standing upon a stump, he preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, causing people uh, to cry out in repentance because of of the God about whom we sang a few minutes ago, uh, the one who does come in judgment, the, the one who is rich in mercy. He was a man who knew what it was to be still before God. Now, he would travel by horseback, and as he would travel by horseback, he would have great time for prayer. You can close your eyes on a horse. The horse is going to kind of know which way to go. Don't do that while you drive. But he could be quiet. He could be still as, as he traveled. And as, as a thought would come to his mind, it was, it was quite humorous. Uh, he, he would write it down so that he would not forget it, but then also get it off his mind so he could continue to be still before God. And as he would travel, he would take and he would write a note on a piece of paper and he would pin it to his overcoat. And so when he would arrive at his destination, he'd get off of his horse and his jacket would be covered with all these notes that he had pinned to himself. But they were out of his mind. They were off of his thought radar so that he could be still before God. Piper, in talking about this, in speaking about the life of Jonathan Edwards, talked about the need for such quiet and stillness in our world. Piper wrote, he said, the life-revolutionizing impact of God's supremacy in this world and His inevitable triumph over the nations, the coming of His glorious kingdom of righteousness and peace, the impact of this awesome reality doesn't hit us. And it doesn't hold us. It doesn't shape us unless we become still and quiet before God. For God hits home in stillness. To have a heart for worship, you've got to stop running. You've got to stop scurrying about. 
You must turn off the television and get alone. Be quiet. Let the mammoth realities of human lostness, let eternal judgment, let never-ending joy and God's universal triumph, let it take hold of you. Let it change your life. We don't think deep thoughts in the midst of noise. We don't ponder eternal reality in moments of distraction. It's what the psalmist writes here. He says, be still and know that I am God. That's not, just a, that's not just a random bit of knowledge. It's not just him speaking about that as some sort of ethereal truth. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Be still and ponder that the Lord is triumphant over all the issues of this world. That the mightiest of nations and their, their world-trampling armies must fall before His sovereignty. It says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth. That His name will be praised. Philippians 2 gives us pause to think about that. That there will come a day when every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is an every that means every. That is an all that means all. Each and every tongue in this world will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the stillness, we ponder, what does that mean? For there are those who will in great joy proclaim, Jesus Christ is Lord, He is my Lord. And the tongues that do not proclaim that will be the tongues that cry out, Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, why did I follow anything else? Be still and know that I am God, is what the Lord said. Now, let's think about what this is. What is being still before God? We think about it in worship, that we do take time, and there's actually, it's, it's, a, it's a rare thing to have moments of silence and peace, something we do need. We need moments where we pray, where we're quiet before God. We think about that tension before a worship service. There is this wonderful tension. We're so excited to see each other. That's a wonderful thing. I rejoice in in seeing smiles on people's faces as they come together, as they celebrate the fact that we can come together in fellowship before God. But there's also a great need that we would quiet our hearts before the Lord. And let me encourage you to, to consider your own practice of behavior as we come together in worship in addition to your life as you go forth into your homes and into the workplace. As we come together in worship, let me ask you, uh, have you ever paused to really prepare yourself for a time of worship? That you would might reflect upon God's Word, that you might think about the hymns that we're going to sing in anticipation of actually saying, I am going to join my voice with the voices of people that I love in praising God over this specific truth of His goodness and glory. You might look at a hymn that we're about to sing. You might look at a prayer that we're going to pray, or that you might simply be still, And speak to God, saying, Lord, you know how busy my week has been. You know how hurried I've been. Lord, quiet me. Make me to be still before you now. As you go forth, let me ask you, as you go home today, as you spend time this afternoon and tomorrow and the next day, how is it that you block off times where you can be still and reflect upon the glory and the goodness of God, that you can consider your own sin and how great is God's love that He has forgiven that sin? Do you turn off the news? Do you find that quiet place to go? 
This silence, let me give you some direction instruction here. This is not the, the meditation or the, uh, the solitude that, that many world religions would proclaim, that you just need to go and clear your mind of all things. Well, I, I think that's self-defeating, the idea of clearing your mind of all things. It, what benefit is that? It's, it's a divine mindfulness of God. It's to pause and reflect and say, I'm going to deliberately be still and focus upon God. Let Him be the center of my attention. Let Him be the focus of my thought. Let my sinfulness draw me to His glory, His goodness, His redemption, His mercy. It's not a mind-clearing nothingness. It's a divine mindfulness of Almighty God, of His goodness and His wondrous, wondrous love for us. How do we do that? Well, as I was talking with the children, the way that we hear God is we're still and we listen to how God has spoken to us. That means we, we spend time in His Word, that we meditate upon His Word. The first psalm says that the wise man's delight is in the law of the Lord and in His law he meditates day and night. And it speaks about that divine fruitfulness of his life. The wondrous way that in spending time in His Word that that wise man would be instructed and led that he would hear the voice of God. And it can't be done in distraction. It must be done in stillness. It must be done in that focused time before Almighty God. So how do we do this? We do this in prayer and we do this in attendance on His Word. That's what we would fill that time with, our communication with God. Tim Keller, in writing about this, he, he, he speaks about the idea of meditating on Scripture in that time of stillness. That we would read Scripture, we would think about Scripture, we would ponder over Scripture. And he gave a, a list of several ways that we can make that time, that stillness before God, meaningful, significant, and life-changing. He spoke about this. He said, as you read God's Word, as you meditate on God's Word, you said, what about this has really connected to my heart and mind? He said, I'm, I'm not just after this about intellectual curiosity. I'm about saying, what is God saying to me? What is God impressing upon my heart, my affections, what I care about, what I'm, I'm focused on, what I love? What is He saying to my mind about how I think about things, how I consider things of this world? What is a characteristic of God that I need to grasp? What is a command that He's given that I need to obey? What is a comfort that I find in this passage that I need to thank God for? Another question is, what indeed does this say? What is the meaning of this? Not simply these words, well, they're well, they're well put. It's an interesting turn of phrase. I appreciate the language here, but what is it saying? Can I take what I'm reading here, whether it be in the King James or the New American Standard or the English Standard or whatever translation reading, can I rearticulate this? Can I speak this back to God as I, as I understand it? This is called reflective listening as we deal with our relationships with other people. If somebody tells me something, a way that they know that I got it is that I would repeat it back to them in my own words. What I hear you saying is this. That's a perfect model for our communication with God as we read this, that we would pray back to God, God, what I hear you saying in this, and you repeat it back in your own words. Can you communicate what Scripture is saying? Another question you need to ask as you meditate on God's Word is, what sins does this bring to mind that I must confess? 
God's Word is a light that shines in those still moments into the dark recesses that we would just prefer to think are not there. What sins does this bring to mind? Lord, as you shine this light in my heart, show me that way of iniquity. Show me that sinfulness that I would confess it. I think the most wondrous question we can ask as we meditate, as we are still before God, is saying, Lord, as I study your word, how does this change me going forward? This is what James talks about when James speaks about looking at God's word and then walking away from it unchanged is like a man who looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets what he saw. We'd look in God's Word and walk away from an unchanged. We'd spend time on Sunday mornings in God's Word saying that I know I should be still. I know that I should know that He is God. I should rejoice that He is exalted among the nations and throughout all the earth. And then I go forth and my life tomorrow looks no different than it did yesterday. We need to ask, Lord, how would you have me respond to your Word spoken to me today? How does He want me? To transform my heart. How does he want me to transform my thinking, my relationships, my habits? And then, and then we respond. We hear God's word and in the stillness we also respond in prayer. Now we all know how to pray. The disciples, I find it wondrously curious when they, they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And we think we know how to pray. We can just talk to God. But you know, Scripture gives us instruction. Scripture, Jesus says, when you pray, pray in this fashion, and we do it. And it's not simply in the recitation of the Lord's Prayer, but praying in that pattern, praying as our Savior does, drawing near to God as Father, praying that the Lord's will would be done, confessing our sins. Or I like to, to use that very, very common acronym that we use in our prayer life of ACTS, A-C-T-S, that we would adore God that we would not slide past that praise to God in our prayer life, that we would say, like Psalm 8 says, Lord, my Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That we would praise God for who He is. That we would speak loving words to Him. You think about that, husbands. Do you think your wife grows weary of you telling her how much you love her, how wonderful she is, how beautiful she is? How dear she is to you? Do you, do you, I hope she doesn't. Wives, do you think your husband ever grows weary of, of you speaking words of adoration, of affirmation to him? Your children, that you would encourage them and, and speak lovingly to them in that way. Our Heavenly Father does not tire of us praising his name. Matter of fact, it says he desires it. He desires that we would praise Him. Read the Psalms and see how they begin and they cry out, Oh Lord, how amazing and wondrous You are. That we would adore God. That we would confess our sins as we see the Lord high and lifted up and we adore Him as He is. Like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, we fall down and we say, But woe is me. I am a sinner. And the more time I spend in your word, like the Apostle Paul, the more I know that I am the greatest sinner I could possibly imagine. And yet I have a greater Savior than I could ever dream. That we confess our sins before God. We would adore Him, we would confess our sins, and we would give thanks that we would be men and women of grateful prayers. That we would thank the Lord. And rather than launching straight into all of our needs and all of the, the things that we see that are not quite right about our lives, we would praise God for all the things that are right. 
that show us that we do have needs. As we pray about our health, we thank the Lord for the health that we have. As we pray about our relationships, we praise the Lord that we have had relationships that have been glorious and encouraging and affirming to us, that we would thank the Lord. We would spend our prayer time adoring God, confessing our sins, thanking God for all that He has done. Making a list. Have you ever sat just to make a list of all the things you're thankful for? And then adding to it? Like Jeremiah, even in a book called Lamentations, Jeremiah would say God's mercies are new every morning. Every morning that means we can think of something new to thank God for. And then the S in Acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's that big fancy word, folks, for Lord, these are my needs. That it is asking what we need. Asking, Lord, this is, this is the desire of my heart. This is where we pray for the salvation of those whom we love. This is where we pray for physical healing. This is where we pray for strength, for comfort, for, for, for courage. These are where we lift our needs before God. That's part of being still before the Lord, is being able to make ourselves honest when we sing the hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer. I'm sometimes hesitant to put that in an order of worship. God, I don't know that we're as honest as we ought to be about that. Is it really a sweet part of our life? Or a begrudging add-on, a necessity in moments of great trial? Or is it that sweet stillness that we know before God? Why do we do this? There's Two things I want to leave you with on, on the matter of this, even three that I think would be very significant as we think about why to do this. One is that we see certainly a pattern of Scripture. We think about Elijah. We talked about this with the men yesterday morning at breakfast, that Elijah, that as he stood before King Ahab, but then in anticipation of his experience on Carmel and all that the Lord had in store with him, it was that period of schooling and preparation that the Lord had for him by the brook Kareth where he would go and he was fed by the Lord and he would drink from the brook until the brook dried up, that he had that time of solitude, that time of stillness, that the Lord would prepare him for the mighty things that the Lord had in store for him. We see this pattern of preparation that Scripture has through our stillness and worship and daily praise. We see not only the pattern of Scripture itself, but the specific pattern of Christ as well. Mark chapter 1 Verse 35, we see right beginning of the ministry uh, as Mark relays it. He describes the pattern of Jesus in this way. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house. And he went off to a solitary place and there he prayed. If our Savior saw the need for that stillness and prayer before God, how do we think that we can avoid it? How can we imagine we have no need for it? Charles Haddon Spurgeon has uh, been called the prince of the preachers. At 27, he was preaching to over 6,000 people who were coming to the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London. Over 6,000 people coming to listen to a 27-year-old preach. And it was amazing because so many students, so many pastors would come to see what was his secret. That's what they imagined. There must be some gimmick. There must be some secret. There must be some secret sauce that you put on the burgers to make everybody want them, right? 
Well, here's, here's what happened. There was one man who came into the, uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle there, and he encountered this rather uh, robust fellow with a beard and, and spoke to him, and, and he said, well, I've come to hear the great Spurgeon preach and to find out why so many come here to hear the gospel. And he didn't know to whom he was speaking because he didn't have television and, and pictures everywhere. He just thought he was speaking to Chuck the janitor, I reckon. And, and he was speaking to this man, and the man said, well, would you like to see the boiler room and the furnace of this church? Well, the guy, not wanting to be impolite, said, sure, I'll let the janitor give me a tour of the boiler room and the furnace in this church. I've come to hear the great Spurgeon and to find out why so many flock to him to hear the gospel. But sure, show me the furnace. Show me what heats this church. So he followed Chuck the janitor down the hall, down some stairs, opened up doors, and there found several hundred elders and leaders of that church on their knees in prayer, bathing the service of that church, the ministry of the pulpit, the proclamation of the word, the effect of the gospel, praying. He says, this is what heats this church. This is what powers this church. It's the prayers of the saint. God working through these prayers. It wasn't Chuck the janitor, it was the pastor who recognized that Charles Spurgeon is just a man. Charles Spurgeon is a man that God has, for whatever reason, decided that it should be as he pastored there for some 38 years, that amazing things would be done, but that was what fueled the church, the prayers of the saints. Tim Keller writes, he says, what you are on your knees, that's who you are, nothing more. Everything else is for show. An awful lot of your Christian life is visible to other people, but your prayer life is practically visible to none at all. It's hard to get away with committing adultery in the long run, but you can get away with never praying almost indefinitely. Nobody's going to know. But God will know. We need stillness. We need quiet. We need that time before the Lord. We need to, to block it off because the world will steal it away. We need to pray and to know that is the power of God at work in us and in our knees, in our quiet spot, as we meditate upon God's Word and we pray it back to Him that we impact ministry around the world powerfully like a furnace in the belly of the church that it would radiate Christ, that we would be warmed, that we would rejoice. Be still, Christians. Know that the Lord is God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are amazing. How wondrous, how high and lifted up. We come as sinners before you, grateful that our Savior. Our Savior has loved us so that He laid down His life for us, that you in love sent Him, that we would be called your children. And so we come, Lord, and our need that we confess before you now is that you would make us men and women who pursue that stillness of prayer and contemplation of your word, meditating upon it, that it would dwell in us richly. Lord, may this week be marked by those sweet hours of prayer, the sweet times of stillness. 
We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.